Hey folks, if you've been tuning in over the last couple of months, you've heard all about the GameTime app and how it can save you some serious cash on last-minute tickets to sports, concerts, and all types of shows. Here's an example of everything you can shop for on GameTime. Want to go to Disney on Ice? You can get tickets to that. The Nutcracker at the Academy of Music? That too. Or if you want to grab tickets to Sixers when they return from their brief four-game road trip, you can grab those tickets as well. Almost anything you could want is on GameTime, and they have a simple, quick, and easy checkout to make buying as easy as possible. There are two things in life I'm extremely passionate about, sports and saving money. GameTime helps you do both, letting you know when the perfect time to buy is so you can get to the game that you want while saving as much of your hard-earned money as possible. Well, now GameTime is hooking you up for the holidays with a $10 credit. Here's what to do. Download the GameTime app in the Google Play or App Store. Click on the My Tickets section of the app, create an account, then under the billing section, redeem code THEATHLETIC. Once again, that's THEATHLETIC, all one word, for $10 off your first purchase. That's free money. Credit is only available to the first 1,000 people who redeem the code and it expires at the end of the year. That's December 31st, 2019. So make moves quick and score last-minute tickets. Welcome, everybody. This is Derek Bodner, joined by Mike O'Connor, on this week's Sixers Beat, a part of the Athletics Podcast Network. How you doing, Mike? I'm all right, man. I'm all right. I've uh, gotten to see a lot of family over the past few days, gotten to see a lot of good basketball, so I can't really complain. Yeah, happy holidays to you. Happy holidays to all of our listeners out there. Hope it's been a pleasant and enjoyable holiday season. And happy basketball as well, the Sixers, with a 121-109 to demolishing of the Best in the NBA Milwaukee Bucks. And quite frankly, that 121 to 109 score is nowhere near sort of the way that one played out. You know, they built up was a 21 point lead at the half. I think the lead what was a high watermark of the, of, of the game. I think 27, maybe somewhere in a third quarter. And then eventually Milwaukee went to his own and Sixers missed some shot. We hit some garbage time and the game got closer than it. Uh, the score got closer than the game actually was. It was. You would have to say that was the most impressive game of the year, right? Like that demolishes the uh, the Boston games. That oh, yeah. I mean, by far the best game of the year. I think. No doubt, no doubt, and I think that they approached it like the most important game of the year. I think Mr. Embiid certainly approached it like the most important game of the year, and you know, I, I think this was like it, uh, this is a very arbitrary uh, thing to measure, but. I think this was the first time that like even four out of the five starters were all playing uh, well at the same time. Like Simmons, Embiid, Harris, Richardson all had at least like pretty good games for all of them. And uh, I, I, I think that might be the first time you can say that all year. And, you know, we got to see what that looks like. And that's that's a team that's capable of blowing the doors off of the best team in the league. Yeah, it was, um, you know... It... It's so weird. Last year, Sixers had a really good season, but they struggled against many of the top teams in the Eastern Conference in the regular season. I think they were like two and six, I want to say, against Boston, Toronto, and Milwaukee. This year's a complete opposite. Like they have some games, Orlando, uh, Washington, where they just look bad against bad competition, but against these top teams in the East, they've come out and they've been, you know, they've been really focused. The, the Boston game up in Boston. That was what I think Boston's maybe second loss at the Garden all season. They came out and they just looked really crisp and really sharp. 
And then you had, obviously, against the Bucks, who came in, you know, Milwaukee came in with a 27-4 and record. Like, this was not just, it wasn't just an important game because it's who everybody sort of thought the Sixers had to go through to get to the NBA Finals. And some other teams in the East have looked good and maybe brought themselves, at least record-wise, and, and maybe even net rating-wise, up to the Sixers level. I don't, I'm not sure I necessarily see that playing out through the rest of the season, but right now they have entered that conversation. And the Bucks have sort of separated themselves from that conversation as being the class of the Eastern Conference, at least up to this point. So to come in, you know, Milwaukee had just recently come off of an 18-game winning streak. I think they had won like 25 of the last 26 games, something absurd like that, with a, a plus 13 net rating, which is just absurd. Like, I don't think anyone's anyone else is in double digits. The Sixers were at like plus 4.6. So in a, a, a like point differential aspect, the Sixers were as close point differential net rating to the Washington Wizards as they were the Milwaukee Bucks. Like they had really separated themselves from in the quality of their play. And, and like I said, I think there are reasons that you could say the Sixers will cover some of that ground, but you really want to see how much these two teams would match up in you know, to look ahead for a, a, play, a potential playoff series. And I think there's some things, you know, the Sixers shot the ever-living hell out of the ball and up and down the roster. Like this is, I think they had like, well, 11 three-pointers in the first half and they averaged nine made three-pointers in a game. And, you know, that's a real question because Milwaukee, as we've talked about a lot here in the last few days, will concede those shots almost every trip down the court. Like in their efforts to cut off the, cut off the paint, prevent you from getting the rim, prevent you from getting the free throw line and, and offensive rebounds, they will they will live with those shots. And if the Sixers came out and they struggled in the first quarter, you wonder how that game would have taken a, a different turn because the Sixers, you know, they, 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 they're a good three-point shooting team in terms of percentages. Like, I think right now they are fifth in the league, fifth best, but they don't generate many of them. And part of that is because they don't have guys like Redick who will move off the ball and sort of create looks for themselves with their movement. They have more catch-and-shoot guys. They don't have ball handlers to really create catch-and-shoot opportunities at a high level, respected to the league-wide high level. And they also have some guys who are maybe don't have the confidence to just fire and forget even when they're missing. You know, they don't... Clay Thompson comes out and misses five in a row. First of all, Clay Thompson doesn't do that too often. But if he does, he comes out and he shoots that 6-1 when he's open. Tobias Harris doesn't always shoot that 6-1. So I think, it, you know, coming out and making shots early was big. And that allowed them to have a big... Like, you know... Tobias Harrison going five for seven. You can't count on that every night, even if he's in rhythm. Freaking Josh Richardson came out and he was on fire. What'd he end up? Four of 11. Like 11 three-pointers from Josh Richardson. You're not going to see that very often, but they did that and that helped them with, with the offense. So maybe some of that isn't sustainable in a playoff series. But the defense was almost what I thought was a more interesting aspect of that game. And the way they were able to frustrate a Milwaukee offense that came in with the number one offense in the league that was remarkably consistent night in and night out. And with the star player, who A, has a, a, a team built around him that complements him almost perfectly, and B, comes out and is, I mean, he, he does not have off nights like that really ever, certainly not this season. So I guess we'll start off with the defense, because I think that's a more interesting aspect of that game. What did you see from them scheme-wise, and what do you think translates well into a seven-game series? Scheme-wise, I mean, nothing special. Like, they didn't, like, when, when I, Toronto... I will say, like, I think, you know... Giannis came in and he's obviously shooting what five three pointers a game, making that a respectable clip. And the question becomes like, like, shit. Like the Sixers last year, last two games, really used Embiid a lot to defend him. Like, can him making shots run them out of that scheme? Because the Sixers, as as Sixers have more depth 
to defend Giannis and almost anyone in the league. But if you remove Embiid or even Horford from that equation, it gets dicey real quickly. So I thought it was interesting to see whether or not Brett would, that would change Brett's approach. And I, I think it didn't. It didn't. And I was, honestly, I was surprised that Joel got like 90% of the assignment. I thought it would be split a little more evenly between him and Horford. Um, so you're right. And, and you're right that uh, that them deciding to just like completely, almost like, like ridiculously ignoring Giannis at the three-point line. Like there were some plays where like Giannis was spotted up with the ball behind the three-point line and Embiid is like in the restricted area, like waiting to get the rebound. And uh, and they just had paid absolutely no respect to him and it worked. Um, and I think, you know, that's that's something I would do if I were the coach. I mean, make Giannis shoot the ball. I'm, I'm not like, I'm not a believer that Giannis is going to go into a playoff series and make 40% of his threes when he's taking five a game. Like, I, I just don't think that's going to happen. I don't think his shot is there. And I think you don't really have a choice. If you're going to play him, like, up in his jersey, like he's a 40% three-point shooter, I mean, how do you guard anything else he does? So you got to concede something. I thought that was the right move for the Sixers. But, you know, just that that's that I don't think is, like, super unique. I think a lot of teams will, will concede that shot for him. And... I just thought the bulk of what they did right against him was just Embiid's individual brilliance. I think that you just saw what a, a locked-in and an engaged Joel Embiid can do. Um, I wrote about this uh, in my in my piece today, uh, just about like Embiid's genius in, indiv- in, in individual defense. And you just see like Embiid processing things in like nanoseconds that like seven foot two centers don't have any practice doing like tracking guys step for step while they're attacking downhill and throwing hesitation moves or whatever at you. Like that's not something that's on a seven foot two centers plate on a regular basis, but Embiid just like reads it so perfectly. Like watching that game, I had this thought, like I was like, okay, if Joel Embiid were six, five, he'd still be an unbelievable defender. Like he's, he's so good at just like reading guys movements and knowing what's going to come next, staying on balance and when you when you finally see him matched up against a guy in Giannis who's his size and is going to play like a perimeter player, you get to see what Embiid can actually do in those one-on-one in space situations where it's like it's like watching a giant Andre Iguodala play defense, and he was just absolutely incredible. Um, the the only thing that I would point out outside of Embiid, I guess two things: Horford was solid. Horford did a solid job. Uh, nothing special. The, the, I also thought Simmons did a really good job of just like sort of opportunistically digging down on his drives. Simmons' hands, I swear, have, have like made a leap this year. Like his hands are like getting to like Covington territory where he can just pluck the ball out of like guys driving full speed. It's it's like unbelievable. And he had a couple of those on Wednesday. Uh, so I would just credit, you know, Simmons sort of like knowing time and place and knowing when he can swipe down on Giannis and, and just interrupt his drives. And Horford was good too, but I just think it all comes back to Embiid. Yeah, I mean, he... I think a lot of people look at his maybe offensive struggles or at least his slow progression as a reader out of the post and out of double teams. And I think they lose sight of how smart he is defensively. And quite honestly, I think maybe the Sixers scheme... I don't want to say hides it, but like they play so conservative in the pick and roll that he doesn't quite do as much in terms of movement and help off the ball 
and even communicating as maybe he would in other schemes. But I think when you see them go a little more aggressive or you see him have to defend in, in space, you know, I think you're right. I think what's always impressed me about him defensively, besides the fact that he's, you know, seven foot two in shoes and 200 and we'll, we'll say 80 pounds and, and, and be generous. He processes information exceptionally quick. And you combine that with his size and his movement, and it really does create a special player. And that was on full display. And I think your piece today at The Athletic demonstrated that pretty perfectly. But like he makes so many A, on time decisions, and B, quick decisions, that it's it's really impressive. It's it's really at a level for big men out, outside of Rudy Gobert that you just, just don't see in today's game. And that's really important. That's really key for what the Sixers do defensively. You know, I yeah. thought... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Nope. Uh, I was just going to say, like, I one of the things I highlighted in that piece was, you know, Giannis likes to, in transition, like, throw maybe, like, one hesitation move at you and just, like, barrel his shoulder into your chest, clear you out of the way, and put a layup up there. And he did that three times in this game. The first time, he was successful. Embiid did not see it coming, just got completely obliterated. The second time, you can sort of see Embiid adjust, like he, he changes his weight like to absorb the contact a little bit better, and as soon as he gets pushed back, he knows a shot attempt is coming, he recovers and contests it. The third time he tries it, he's like, no, I've seen this shit before, I know it's coming, and he just pulls the chair out from under him, and he got called for the foul there, which was a, a terrible call, but it, it reminded me of the end of that Boston game last year when he was guarding Kyrie. And he even said so after the game. And, and there was a play earlier in that game where Kyrie pulled the trick where, you know, you have a big guy sort of lingering behind you trying to catch up uh, when you're driving to the rim. And you sort of stop so that the big man, his, his momentum hits you from behind and you draw a foul. And he got Joel with that one time earlier in the game. But on that last play, that famous play where he blocks him, uh, you know, he recovers in front of him. Embiid knows it's coming. So Kyrie sort of like stops to draw the contact from behind and Embiid literally goes around him and blocks a shot with his left hand. Like that's just the stuff that, that geniuses are made of. And it, like his ability to see, like I said, in just nanoseconds, what move is coming and adjust to it perfectly is ridiculous. Yeah, it was, it was a really impressive performance. Also, it was good that, you know, I think, Going back to last March, the game the Sixers won in Milwaukee, you know, Embiid defended Giannis for most of the night. I have the numbers in front of it. 45 possessions, Giannis shot 7 for 16 for 23 points. So he had success against Embiid, but it wasn't like take over the game or at least it, 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 was, it was just success. It wasn't completely dominant. And then in the, what, in the 38 possessions that anybody else defended him, he scored 29 points on 10 field goal attempts. It was just absolutely absurd. And obviously that means they got the free throw line a lot. He also set up his teammates for a bunch. Like he just, he destroyed Ben Simmons. He destroyed anyone else Sixers threw at him. And having, you know, you go back to Al Horford. And Al Horford ended up defending him a fair amount when Embiid was on the bench. But when you're right, when they were in the game, Embiid was the primary defender, but Horford then came in and gave them competent defense behind that. Like I think Horford... Or Giannis shot one for nine against Embiid, which is just absurd. And then three for seven against Horford. And having that secondary defender, and Simmons only ended up defending him for a couple of possessions as a, as a primary man-to-man guy. And you didn't have like 
you know, Jimmy Butler as like your tertiary defender. Like you had, you had, you have real depth now and a Sixers more than maybe anyone in the league can throw a good defender at Giannis and someone who he's not going to, I mean, I'm not going to say he's not going to overpower him because he will get the best of Al Horford and certainly Ben Simmons from time to time, but he, he, he you will at least have a chance for 48 minutes. And I think you saw that. And look, Giannis had an off night. He had an off night from the perimeter. Like he, he did not, what, what did he shoot? Oh, for nine over seven, I think. Oh, for seven from three point range. He's not going to do that every night. Like, some night six are going to come out with the same scheme. He's going to shoot three for seven and it's going to look a little bit worse. He missed some bunnies at the rim. Mostly they were contested, but he still had a lot, a lot of shots at the rim that he will make on some nights and it'll be the same defense, the same pressure. And you just, it's, it's, it's a great player occasionally making great shots. But having somebody that you at least have a chance for 48 minutes is something almost no other team in the league has. And it gives you, it gives you, it gives you, it gives you a chance against these guys. And for a team in Milwaukee who's just, you know, they're going to overpower 95% of the teams they go up against. And the Sixers are the one team they really are going to struggle to do that with. And you wonder if that is going to tip the scales. And it's why we, we, we said last season at this time that Sixers might match up better with Milwaukee than they did against Toronto. It's why we said coming into the season that Milwaukee might be a better team, but the Sixers might be able to make up some of that ground in a seven-game series. And I do think defensively we saw that play out a little bit um, the other night, the other day. Yeah, and you know what? I think one of my biggest takeaways is from that game is that when you can successfully, I don't want to use the word neutralize, but limit Giannis, like, Milwaukee's offense doesn't have another gear. Nope. They don't. You, you saw that when he went to the bench too. But if you can, like you said, limit it when he, even when he's on the court, it does bring them back down to earth for sure. Yeah, it's just everything. Everything in their offense is leveraged around either Giannis drawing doubles or Giannis just creating advantages one way or another, and them being, you know, them having enough spacing, enough shooting to punish it however they want. And it's like, I, I just thought of how different it was, like. If Embiid were having a bad offensive game, like maybe the Sixers just lean on the Simmons Horford lineups, or um, maybe the Sixers just you know shade towards like Embiid plus shooters and don't play him with Simmons as much. Like they have so many different gears they can go to when a team is able to stop one of you know one of their primary uh, like like go to strategies, I guess. And Milwaukee just doesn't have that. You know Middleton got hot at the end. Uh, I think there's been a lot of a, a lot of people are pretty split on Middleton in terms of whether or not he's an all-star, just how good he is, but they just don't have another option. When you can not get overpowered by Giannis, like, if I were Milwaukee, I'd be concerned in terms of, like, where do we go when that happens? Yeah, and it's it's why, to me, like, I've said this before, I don't believe in statement games in December. Like statement games that then aren't followed up by similar statements in January, February, March, April, May, June. Like they're just nice wins in 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 December. Like you really have to build off of that. But I do think you can sort of you you can certainly learn stuff from a matchup that could prove. Like, I guess I guess the way I'll phrase it: in May, Toronto's not going to give one shit that the Sixers beat the Bucks in December. Not one shit. It's not going to matter, especially if the Sixers don't end up playing good basketball between then and now. But in Late May or June, when the Sixers meet the Bucks, the Bucks might remember this game. And what you can learn is that the Sixers... It, it, it's why what I took away from the game was much more on the defensive side of the court 
than offensively because you just did see a frustrated Milwaukee team because of the Sixers' size and because of the Sixers' ability not to, you know, have to constantly help off of of shooters to uh to go slow down Giannis. It was a it was a really impressive performance. It was something, you know, I worry a little bit about whether Joel can do that night in and night out over a seven game series. Like that was just a lot of effort for him to expend on on both ends of the court, but especially defensively. Like Giannis is a uniquely terrifying defensive matchup. Like the way he can cover ground and attack the rim and and use his strength and athleticism and he can just he's he's constant effort you have to put out to slow him down. And and, and I mean that's part of what makes Horford very valuable, but I do worry a little bit about you all doing that over seven games. Yeah, and and you're touching on the key word right there, which is effort. And I, I, I want to pose this question to you. Like, you know, you talked at the beginning about Milwaukee's record and their net rating and how it's just historically good. Like, how much of the difference between Milwaukee's season and Philly's season so far has just been effort? Like, Joel Embiid literally said after the game, like, if this isn't a quote, this is very close. He said, I've just been chilling the whole year. <laughs> like, and it's true. Like, you can see it. The only yep. games he's gotten up for this year are Boston and Milwaukee. Like, that's it. Every other game, he's just, he's in like 70%, 75%. And even some important games like that Miami game. Yeah, we get, I think we, it was we last get Wednesday. Zen Joel a lot. This yeah. Zen Joel. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, he is in some deep, like, transcendental meditation in half of these games. Like, that that Miami game, like, he was sleepwalking the whole game. And, like, and then I look at the other side of things, and I see Giannis, like, playing through injury on a Tuesday night against the Cavs. And it's like, wow, this dude really just wants every single game, every single win. And the Sixers clearly don't have that level of urgency, especially Joel. And, you know, I'm just curious, like, what do you think, how, how much of the difference between these two seasons that these, that these teams have had is just a matter of effort? Yeah, uh, let's let's take one quick break to hear from DoorDash, and then we'll get right into that, because I think it's an interesting question. Long day at work, tough day at school. Maybe you're still stuck at the office. It doesn't matter. You can still treat yourself to the meal you deserve and have your favorite restaurants come to you with DoorDash. DoorDash can help you get your next meal from your favorite restaurants in a matter of minutes. DoorDash connects you to your favorite restaurants in your city, and ordering is easy. Open the DoorDash app, choose what you want to eat, and your food will be delivered to you wherever you are. Not only is your favorite pizza joint already on DoorDash, but there are over 340,000 restaurants in 3,300 cities, so you might even find a new favorite, too. With door-to-door delivery in all 50 states and Canada, order from your local go-tos, or choose from your favorite national restaurants like Chipotle, Wendy's, Chick-fil-A, and the Cheesecake Factory. Don't worry about dinner. Let dinner come to you with DoorDash. Right now, our listeners can get $5 off their first order of $15 or more when you download the DoorDash app and enter promo code SIXERS. That's $5 off your first order when you download the DoorDash app from the App Store and enter promo code SIXERS. Once again, don't forget, that's promo code SIXERS for $5 off your first order from DoorDash. And now back to the show. Yeah, so I... I, (sighs) This makes... uh, Covering the season a little difficult because you never know what's a real problem and what is sort of a problem that exists because it is, the games aren't as as important as they eventually will be. It is it makes it tough, I think, on fans because you you just 
you, there's so many, ex, so much expectations around this team that it can be crushing, and you don't know whether or not what you're reacting to is really going to be a problem when the game's. Matt, it's just it's a very weird. And usually, what you see, you see this was like the Warriors, who you have confidence not this year's Warriors, obviously, but previous year's Warriors, where you have confidence. You're, you're like, all right, you can sleepwalk because we've we've seen you perform at a championship level in the playoffs. So you overlook it and you're fine with it. And then there's also some people who will say like, well, the Sixers haven't done enough to sleepwalk through a regular season. They don't deserve to be able to do that, which from a sentimental sentimentality standpoint, I get. But then there's also the truth that the only thing that really matters is whether or not Joel Embiid is good to go in the playoffs in, 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 in April, May, and June. So there's like, there's, there's this, sort of tug of war going on where it's like, I understand that Embiid needs to be a hundred percent for playoffs. I understand that that means playing fewer minutes, which is going to hurt his counting stats, which is going to hurt his MVP voting, which is going to hurt the Sixers one loss record. And it's going to hurt the Sixers net rating and their rank in that regard. So I, uh, yeah, I, I, is all of that gap, you know, we talked about a 13 to 4.6 difference in net rating is all of that gap fact milwaukee comes out every night and plays with urgency no it's not all that gap is it a couple points in either direction like if milwaukee was playing like the sixers would they be a plus 10 net rating at the sixers if they were playing like milwaukee would they be a plus seven net rating it might be it might certainly cover up some of that gap and it is it is it's tough because you have Embiid. Embiid's body type is not Giannis. he's he's not he's i mean he's seven foot two 280 290 wherever he's at at this point of the season pounds like he has a history of lower body injuries he has a history of knee issues he's not in the best shape and i can fault him for that but that's not going to change the reality of well should he be playing 37 minutes no he shouldn't like i'm very happy with the minute total that Embiid is at but there is very clearly i mean these games that he's played against boston and milwaukee it's just that's a very different Joel Embiid. and if you're going to tell me that that is the player the sixers will get in the playoffs then that completely changes any concern i have about this team not erases because there are still certainly offensive concerns this team will have especially when you start going up against the really great defenses but it eases a lot of the concerns for sure so if, i guess what i'm saying is how do you how, how do you evaluate the regular season i have no fucking idea <laughs> yeah good thing i'm not know. paid to do that you know <laughs> yeah it's a good thing no i don't i don't know either man and you know it's just it's hard like you you don't want to like just fall into this trap, but it just seems like a lot of what the Bucks are doing is valuable in the regular season, and more of the things that the Sixers are doing are more valuable in the postseason. Like they're dominating teams with sheer effort, and their scheme to like leave decent shooters wide the hell open. Like, yeah, that works when you're playing teams with like a bunch of mediocre shooters, but. I don't know if you're going to hinge like your whole game plan on Josh Richardson, like not hitting 37% of his threes. Like, I don't know if I want to do that in a playoff series. And, you know, you just look at like, also Milwaukee doesn't have like the, this, like I said, the second gear, another, like another option besides Giannis, who's going to completely carry the load offensively. And then you look at the Sixers who are like preserving energy for the postseason who are just absolutely massive and are going to be able to stop, you know, Giannis's, not stop, but limit Giannis's overpowering in the postseason. And it's like, 
it's like you, you just add it all up and it's like I think the Sixers will probably get a little better in the playoffs and I think Milwaukee will probably get a little worse and you just wonder if you know that's enough to erase that gap I'm not saying that it is but I think that game specifically you have to look at it and say okay Philly has a puncher's chance in this if if the two teams meet in the playoffs like they they have a a legit chance yeah, and I mean, look, we will learn a lot more. I think the Sixers play Milwaukee two more times. I think they're one of the teams they only play three in the regular season, which is just a travesty. Uh, but they have another one coming up here in a little over a month. And we will, you know, we, we will learn about re- repeatability a lot in those next two matchups. And that will be really interesting to watch because there is, like I said, the Sixers won't make that many shots all that often. They'll, they might make more than their league, their their average on a year. Like Milwaukee conceding those shots will give them more opportunity, but they're not going to make 21 of 44 or whatever they, they made. Giannis isn't going to have that bad of a night shooting either from the perimeter or at the rim. So there's going to be some some change. You're going to have Eric Bledsoe coming back, which will be real interesting to see on both good and bad aspects because that is sort of the one shooter or non-shooter on Milwaukee's team that you can sort of sell out to run away from. And then you have all kinds of things like how does Sixers defense change over the course of seven game series how does the Sixers effectiveness change when they're playing when the the the, I guess the effort discrepancy is bridged when that gap is bridged there's going to be it's I really really hope that these two teams meet in a seven game series I think it would be fascinating from a star power perspective fascinating from a, a a strategy perspective and just from a strength and weaknesses you know I think one of the things that would be real interesting over a seven game series you have Giannis, who, as much as he has improved as a shooter, is not what he feels most confident in. So if you're going to say, Giannis, take, you know, take 53 pointers over the course of a seven game series. If he hits a slump, how does he react to that? How does that change his willingness? How does that change him second guessing himself? And then you have the Sixers, who are not a high volume three point shooting team going up against a team who will willingly concede that shot. If they go a game or two games struggling, how do they react? How do they respond? How does that affect their you know, their their future strategy. It would just be, it would be a, a terrific series to watch. I really hope we get that this year. And as much of a slog as the Toronto series was, and look, the Toronto series was exciting. Not aesthetically pleasing basketball. This has a chance to be a real aesthetically pleasing seven-game series, and it, it does feel like one that would go deep. I agree. I agree. But the East is deep, man. It you is. never know. It is. It is. I mean, it, it so I, I guess we'll, we'll, we'll go to that. Do you still view these two teams as the class of the Eastern Conference? Like, do you think Boston and Miami and and Toronto and eventually, especially now with it looks like Brogdon, um, or I'm sorry, Oladipo, not getting close, but I think it's still like a month or so away, but it looks like he is progressing at least. Do you still view this as a two-team race? I don't think you can call it a, a two-team race, but I think you can, I think I would say that those are the two favorites for sure. I think that, like, uh, my prediction is just that it ends up being Milwaukee 1, Philly 2. And you get into those second-round playoff series, and obviously a lot can happen. But I think the odds are that, you know, Boston will probably— I, th- I just think Boston will be the three seed, and we're going to see Philly and Boston in the second round. And I just like the Sixers matchup there. I think that, you know— Boston does not have anyone who can even pretend to guard Joel Embiid, and the Sixers' size can really bother the Celtics in a lot of ways, and it'll wear them down over the course of a seven-game series. 
And I just see, you know, Milwaukee will just completely overpower a team like Toronto or Miami or one of those teams. Um, so I, I like, could the Sixers have like a nightmare series and lose to Boston? Yeah, it's possible. Like Boston's really good, but I, I just see those two teams as I see Philly and Milwaukee as the two best teams in this conference. And I, I just expect them to meet in the conference finals. Yeah. I, I do still think that the Sixers are second best team in the Eastern conference. Like as good of a story as Boston and Miami and, and Toronto, I mean, Toronto is a terrific story. I think in, especially in the playoffs, I think the Sixers have are better built. Like, will they end up with the two seed? I don't know. Like, I mean, we just got done talking about how this team doesn't seem to really have the energy level in the regular season that you see a team like Milwaukee, but also a team like Toronto have. Like, they come out and they have that intensity and that focus every night. And it's weird talking about the Sixers that way. So will they end up with the two seed? I don't know. I'd still say probably. Like, I think they have a chance to come out here and have a strong second half and and maybe have a more sustainable roster in terms of, of winning 57 games or whatever. But there's some other good teams like those. I'm Boston. I do agree is probably most likely three seed of that group. I don't think Miami's going to completely fade like some people do, but I don't think they're quite to that level. And Toronto and India are real interesting, but I think, yes, I still think the Sixers are second best team. I still think they will have the second best chance of winning in the playoffs. And like I said, that, that playoff series will just be, Downright fascinating. Um, it will be. I this matchup is just. It's just so interesting. It, it is. It is. It, it is strength against weakness. It is style against competing style. It would be fantastic. As a and sports writer and a, and an NBA fan, I hope we get. It. Yeah, and it's and it's a a battle of completely maximizing one star, and his and just leveraging all of his strengths. Versus just like throw all these very good players together and hope that it works out. And, you know, we're going to see how much that matters, whether talent will win out or whether, you know, maximizing your one best player will win out. It's, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. Yes, it will. All right, let's take one more quick break this time to hear from DraftKings. If you're a football fan, the holiday season is here. And we know what that means. Bowl season, as in well over 30 bowl games before the championship game on January 13th. If that's not enough to get you excited, the playoff push is underway for the pros. Need even more? The DraftKings Sportsbook app can get you in on all that action and more 24-7, 365 days a year. With so much going on this week, they have great promotions running every day. From odds boost to free bets, DraftKings has it all. It's the final week of the pro football season, so be sure to get your bets in this weekend and don't miss out on the bowl games happening all week long. Plus, DraftKings Sportsbook will give new users a free bet just for signing up. It's no wonder the DraftKings Sportsbook app is America's top-rated sportsbook app. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app right now and use code TOSS. For a limited time, all new users can get a free bet when you sign up. Plus, when you make your first bet, you can get a risk-free bet up to $500. Don't forget, sign up with code TOSS to place your first bet, and you can get a risk-free bet up to $500. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older. Pennsylvania-only restrictions apply. Gambling problem called 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to the show. Let's pivot a little bit to some specific players. Furkan Korkmaz. His play here over the last two games, ever since Matisse Thibel went out with the bone bruise. And again, Thibel 
what I think he was going to be reevaluated in two weeks. I think we're probably about a week into that two week stretch. That does not mean he will return after two weeks. He will be reevaluated and we will have an update. It sounds like that bone bruise is going to keep him out for some time. So Furkan Korkmaz has become a, a really important player. Is he a legit piece in your mind? It's a tough question. I think in a playoff series, he's going to get hunted a lot defensively. But, like, offensively, he's just invaluable. Like, the ability to hit catch-and-shoot threes with a quick release with guys, you know, within four feet of you is a rare skill set on this team. I think that Korkmaz is able to, offensively at least, like, find the right balance of, like, not being a total gunner, like, heat check guy. But it just feels like he always shoots when he's supposed to. And I feel like that's not true of anyone else on this team. <laughs> like, whenever whenever the opportunity is right for Korkmaz to shoot, I think he takes it. Whereas Tobias Harris, Al Horford, Josh Richardson, those guys do not. And, you know, I, I there were a couple times, I think he had three threes in the third quarter on Wednesday against Milwaukee's zone. And, like, you, especially if this team is going to be facing a lot of zone, you need guys like that. Uh, to, to just make zones pay for for you know playing off of them and 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 rotations and all that sort of stuff like you need guys who are just quick catch and release players and Korkmaz certainly is that if if you made me guess will he be in the playoff rotation right now I'd have to say yes I mean he 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 leads the team in three pointers made he leads the team and that's despite like that's amazing that is yeah. flat out amazing this was a guy who Obviously, had his his third year option declined a little over a year ago. He was a free agent, signed a minimum contract, and when he played an opening night, it blew my first of all, it blew my mind that he was in the rotation after, you know, the team basically discarding him and him finding no interest around the league. But for him to now have worked his way in, I mean, you talk about leading the team in three points. That's crazy. You look at yeah. his his December stats, he is averaging 7.4 points in 17.7 minutes per game, shooting 44% from three-point range and making one and a half per game. And that is in a limited role for a guy who really night in and night out, you don't, like some nights he's the first uh, player off the bench, some nights he start, he gets a spot start, but it seems like more and more lately, even with, with when Matisse comes back, I think you're right, you kind of need his skill set in that offense. And it, it's an amazing turnaround for a player who just looked like he was essentially discarded. Yeah. I, I think, I think Furkan has figured things out mentally quite a bit. I, and... I, I mean, look, the, 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 the shot, it always looked pure. Like it always looked like this was going to be not 44% from three, because that's real tough for anyone to do, but he always had a, a, a good release. He did have that quick release that he could go to. He could shoot a little bit off the move. Like, he came out his first two years and he struggled from three. And maybe part of that was a Liz Frank injury. Maybe part of that was just, it's tough to really get going when you have such inconsistent playing time. Maybe part of it was just adjusting to the league. But I felt the shot would come around. But it is it has come around even more than you would have expected. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Furkan can do like a couple of things off the dribble. Like he's got a nice floater. He can throw some... Well, hold on. Before we start that, we have to mention the behind-the-back passes and the pump fakes because... Those oh, are just otherworldly. You're preaching the choir on the pump fakes. I mean, I'm I'm leading the bandwagon. It's actually unfortunate we have not seen a good Furcon pump fake in a long time, and uh, that 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 really upsets me. But hopefully, we'll see one soon. Uh, but yeah, he he's got like 
kind of like an old man game, like almost like a slow-mo Anderson kind of game. And uh, I, I like it. Like, it's like he's he's able to get to that floater like once a game or something like that. And, uh, you know, he, he's just he's capable of making some stuff happen. The way he moves is like very, like I said, like Kyle Anderson-ish. But it's effective. He gets places and uh, he doesn't turn the ball over a ton. Like, he he's just capable. If he's able to survive on defense, like, yeah, I definitely think he's in this playoff rotation. And that is sort of like the one area where you could see them kind of hunt in the trader buyout market. Like, when you start talking about buyout, you wonder how much, like, if you can get a shooter, especially one who can shoot on the move, he's probably not going to be a great defender anyway because otherwise he wouldn't be available on the buyout market. So you sort of wonder, you know, I, I think these Sixers sort of win in the last buyout season and kind of expected a repeat of the Ilyasova and Bellinelli year. And maybe that was, you know, Wesley Matthews or whoever they thought they could get. I wonder how they'll approach that this year because, you know, as we saw last year, it, it sometimes it'll happen and maybe it will, especially on a good team that can offer playing time. But you just, you can't predict that. So I wonder if they'll be a little more aggressive at the trade deadline because of that. But even so, like somebody who's going to be available in a trade, like there's going to be flaws. And maybe they're not quite as pronounced as Furkan's defensive limitations, but you're gonna you're you're just you're not gonna get that perfect player. It's gonna be very tough. Yeah, I guess the the question is like, who would you prioritize? Would you prioritize an upgrade at the Korkmaz spot in the rotation or at the Trey Burke, Raul Net, Howell Neto spot in the rotation? Yeah, I mean, I think that's gonna depend a lot on the the details. Um, yeah. I'd love, I'd love to get more ball handling. I would, I even more than shooting. I think ball handling, playable ball handling, is a really big concern for this team. So if you just like, without any worrying about the details, just ask me that question. I would probably say the Trey Burke, Neto positions would be my priority. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, it, like like you said, if if all else is equal in terms of you know what you're giving up and and you know you're not getting like a super weak defensive player back at either spot. Like, yeah, I, I would agree. I would prioritize the backup point guard. But I mean, a, a, anyone that you can get, um, God, how much Korkmaz and Thibel when he comes back, how much they can prove over the remaining, you know, three and a half months of the regular season will just be so crucially important for this team. And if those two can develop into real legit playoff, rotation pieces and and i mean thibel when he had that much stretch where a he couldn't miss a shot and b his defensive decision making just seemed like it reached another level that it maybe wasn't at to start the year so you had his aggressiveness along with good decisions if he if that can be a real like consistent thing and that's a lot to ask for a rookie but man that just like those two players as much as anyone they it sounds absurd when you have a team with five all-star or borderline all-star starters to be talking about Furkan Korkmaz and Matisse Thibel <laughs> as keys in the playoffs. But I think they have such unique skill sets that it is somewhat true. I agree. I think, I think we're going to find out just what the organization, the front office thinks of Korkmaz and Thibel, depending on, you know, how aggressive they are at the deadline and acquiring a guy like that, you know, to, to take those minutes. Like, there's a chance that they, and not to not to slight either of those guys, but there's a chance they look at them and just say like, they're not ready, both in terms of like development or maybe like, you know the like 
do you really want a, a rookie to be your seventh guy in an NBA Finals? Like, do you trust yeah. Matisse? You know, and, and I think we're going to see just how much trust the front office has in both of those guys, depending on how aggressive they are. Yeah, and I mean, that's not a slight to Matisse or Furkan at all. It's mm-hmm. just a, it's a really tough ask. It's a really tough ask. But I mean, he was he was really impressive for a good stretch there. So it'd be great if maybe this bone bruise doesn't keep him out too long, and he can you can just get more you know more information before you have to go out there at the uh, at the trade deadline. Josh Richardson, he you know really struggled when he came back from the injury. Um, had a couple of games that were were down, both in terms of his offensive play, but also seemed like his defense was down a little bit too. Had a huge night against uh, against Milwaukee. I mean, ended up like the efficiency numbers weren't what you would expect. But he made a couple of really big shots. Made some good decisions with the ball. His defense was there. Do you think we're we're maybe out of that Josh Richards? Because before his injury, I mean, the, the Miami game will jump out as the biggest example of this, but he was playing really good ball. Do you think he's back to maybe what you would hope from him? It looks like it. You know, it's hard to read. I mean, Josh has had a weird season. Like, it was kind of an iffy start. And then, like you said, he had a couple of big games against, like, OKC and and that first game against Miami. Then he gets injured. Then he's sort of not the same. And now he's coming back around. And it's just, like, it's hard to get a read on him. And there there are some games where I look at him and I just say, like, yeah, that's that guy's like a legit third option on this team. And like, I, you know, you're, you're just comfortable with him creating and picking roles and, and a lot of the stuff he does looks replicable, but then there are games where he just totally disappears and everything looks clunky. And it's just so hard to say. I I just think, I just think he's going to be sort of an inconsistent guy. And I could just easily see like in a playoff series, he has like two games where he scores 25 and he has, four games where he scores like 11 and I just think that's sort of who he is I, I, I'm honestly you know I'm not really expecting him to stabilize I'm expecting a lot to just fluctuate throughout the year of just like I said a lot of big performances and a lot of like a lot of games where it's like man where where was Josh Richardson and, and what happened there um, the one thing that that is very consistent with him is his defense and I, I just love watching him on defense. Like, that guy just cares. Like, period. And it's all the time. It's every game. Doesn't matter how meaningless it is. And I think that's something that's very necessary on this team. And, you know, he's not like he's not like as much of a Tasmanian devil as like a Pat Bev or a Marcus Smart, but he just doesn't take he doesn't take plays off. And you can just see by the way he carries himself on that end. He takes everything personally, and it, he just cares. He cares, which is which is awesome. Yeah, it is. It really is. When you start off with four players in Embiid, Horford, Simmons, and Richardson, like the defensive potential, their ability to have the size, throw three different defenders at Giannis, and also not really lose anything on the perimeter. It is just, it's a very unique squad. You know, I think they're, Right now, right around like sixth or seventh, seventh in the league defensively. I think they're a better defensive team than that. I think it's a team that, you know, defense is so much about effort and night to night effort and schematic changes. And right now, I think they're sitting in their base defense. The Zen Embiid and overall effort level is up and down. But I think when it come when push comes to shove, I expect this team to be 
really locked down. And I still expect them. Like, I think they might be sixth or seventh, but I think everyone outside of the top two is like real bunched up. They could still end up having a second or third best defense in the league. But when, when the playoffs roll around, I expect this, I expect this squad to be pretty special on that end. Totally. And yeah, like, like we said earlier, that was, that was probably the biggest takeaway from the Milwaukee game. All right, I think that is probably a good place to cut it off. They have some road-heavy portion of the schedule now coming up. They do not return back to Philadelphia until a, a January 6th game against the Thunder. They've got the Magic and then the Heat. Uh, we will have Rich Hoffman there for both of those games, so go check that out. And then they will have the Pacers on New Year's Eve and then the Rockets in the New Year. So another another good stretch. You know, that, that Heat-Pacers-Rockets is not a team that has always been great on the road. So we will get a chance to learn more about that here in that stretch. And if they win, then that's great. And if they lose, we'll just be like, eh, regular season doesn't matter. This team will (laughs) ramp it up. And that's what makes covering the team so, so gosh darn fun. But thank you, Mike, for jumping on. And we will talk to you soon. Of course. Thanks for having me on.